This morning, this Sunday morning, as we do every Sunday morning, we have gathered to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good news that He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. And this is what we celebrate this morning. But there's a question that we must confront as we think about and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What difference does the resurrection make? What difference does the resurrection make in history? What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make in your life from week to week and even from day to day? We believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and He is Lord. But does that belief shape our behavior, our lives? The resurrection of Jesus might mean something for you on Sunday, for your Sunday, but does it mean something for every other day of the week? This morning, as we study God's Word together, we discover the difference that Jesus' resurrection makes, His heavenly reign makes in history and in His people. For Christians, the resurrection and reign of Jesus has an impact. It makes a difference. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 2. And it's my prayer that you will come to see that Jesus' resurrection has altered history, how it's altered His people, and how it ought to alter your life. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bible, open your copy of God's Word, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you can find the passage beginning on page 909 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, let me set our context, the context of our study of Acts chapter 2. From our study of Acts chapter 1 several weeks ago, we learned that this book, the book of Acts, was written by Luke who wrote his gospel, Luke's gospel. It's the continuation of the narrative of Jesus' mission on earth. Luke's gospel records the mission of Jesus from his incarnation through his life, death, and resurrection to his ascension. And the book of Acts is Jesus, it records Jesus continuing his mission really from his throne in heaven. Put differently, Luke's gospel focused on Jesus' ministry on earth before he ascended into heaven. And Acts addresses the activity of Jesus after he ascended into heaven. We're especially going to see this focus on Jesus' activity after his ascension here in Acts 2. And what we'll see is that the first action of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ is to pour out the Holy Spirit just as he promised. Now I know I asked you to turn to Acts 2, but if you could back up and find chapter 1 verse 8. The chapter numbers are the larger numbers there in the text and the verses are the smaller numbers. This is part of what Jesus said to his disciples when they asked if it was time to restore the kingdom. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you, speaking to his disciples, Jesus said to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now this verse, this is the program that the book of Acts is going to follow. This is how the kingdom will be restored. And you're going to notice that the first order of business there in the program, according to Acts 1.8, is the sending of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see the difference it makes in the lives of God's people. So what does happen in Acts chapter 2? Well, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to his disciples on the day of Pentecost. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Then Peter, he preaches a wonderful sermon which explains that the sending of the Holy Spirit is simply a consequence of Jesus' exaltation, His resurrection from the dead, uh, and His enthronement, His ascension to heaven. That's what Peter preaches from Acts chapter 2, beginning there in verse 14 and stretching through to verse 36. Then finally, the chapter closes depicting how King Jesus brings citizens into His kingdom and how they conduct life together 
as his subjects. That was what we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 to 47. And it's in that section that we're especially going to see the practical difference that the resurrection makes in the lives of Christians. If you force me to boil Acts chapter 2, all 47 verses, down to a single sentence, the thrust of the chapter, this is what I think it would be. Through the Holy Spirit, the risen and reigning Jesus is restoring God's kingdom. Through the Holy Spirit, the risen and reigning Jesus is restoring God's kingdom. Now, if that's the message of Acts chapter 2, and I think it is, and I'm going to try to persuade you that it is this morning. If that's the message of Acts chapter 2, then it has immediate relevance for your life. You, sh- you should be asking all sorts of questions about that. If it's true that through the Holy Spirit, the risen and reigning Jesus is restoring God's kingdom, then a question like, am I a part of God's kingdom, should be jumping into your mind. You should be asking yourself, how might I know if I'm a part of God's kingdom? What does it look like to live as a part of God's kingdom? Well, these questions, they get at what practical difference the resurrection and reign of the Lord Jesus ought to make in your life. And you should not just assume that just because you turned up to church on Easter Sunday, that you are a part of God's kingdom. You should let God's word read your life, even as you read it. You should let God's word read your life and help you answer these questions. And I hope that by the time we've completed our study of Acts chapter 2, you'll be helped to answer these questions. And if necessary, amend your life so that you come under the reign of the King, of Jesus, who was raised from the dead and now reigns in heaven. So here's how we're going to study, uh, proceed in our study of Acts chapter 2. We'll look at this passage in three sections under three headings. I think there's an insert there in the bulletin that might help you along. But here's how we're going to look at this with the restoration of the kingdom in view. Number one, the kingdom is restored through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Number two, the kingdom is restored through the king's resurrection and reign. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. And number three, the kingdom is restored through a new community. Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 to 47. If you didn't get those, not to worry. I'll repeat each of those headings as we make our way through the text. Through the Holy Spirit, the risen and reigning Jesus is restoring God's kingdom. So let's see how this restoration begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to read that passage now, and we're moving now into our first point. The kingdom is restored through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Follow along. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Well, this event is some 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' disciples, they had been waiting for this day to arrive. Jesus didn't tell his disciples exactly when the sending of his Holy Spirit would take place. But in God's plan and providence, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place in conjunction with the festival of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival conducted about seven weeks after the Passover. You remember that Jesus, he was crucified during Passover. And the Gospels teach us that he was the Passover lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. Jesus took our punishment so God's punishment against our sin could pass over us. Pentecost was a celebration seven weeks after Passover, marking really the end of the harvest. And by the time we reach the end of Acts chapter 2, we will see that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has harvested thousands of souls gathered from those in Jerusalem for this celebration. We see Jesus restoring his kingdom through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, really from several different vantage points. First, you'll notice there in verse 2 that Luke says that suddenly there came from heaven, and those are key words there, from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it came from heaven. Uh, Peter's going to make this point explicit in his sermon, but what Luke is doing here is he is implying that Jesus sent the Spirit from heaven. If you look over at Acts chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see that three times in a single verse, Luke mentions that Jesus went to heaven. And in John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus told his disciples that it was to their advantage that he would go away from them so that he could send the helper, that is, the Holy Spirit, to them. So Luke is telling us that Jesus went to heaven so that he could send the Spirit uh, from heaven. And there's another indication that the kingdom is being restored in this event. The, the mighty sound with the divided tongues of fire appearing and resting on the disciples, it actually harkens back to when God's kingdom was first formed at Mount Sinai. Later this afternoon, I encourage you to go back and read Exodus chapter 19, especially verses 16 to 18. And what you'll see is that when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, He descended with fire, with a loud sound, a loud trumpet blast, and the whole mountain shook. And God later manifested His presence as a pillar of fire when He wandered with His people through the wilderness. That's something of what we're seeing here, a hearkening back to the first formation of God's kingdom in the Old Testament. But now that pillar of fire is no longer resting on a single place, but on all of God's people. Each one of God's people, Luke tells us. This sign is a sign showing us that God does not merely dwell in one place, but with all of His people. He does this, as we see there in verse 4, by His Holy Spirit. See, this outward sign, it was, it was given in order to signify a new reality. One that was actually hoped for in the Old Testament itself. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come to rest upon particular people for particular purposes, for a particular or limited amount of time. Moses himself longed for the day when all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit. So in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, Moses said this, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. What we're seeing here is the day had come. The day had come, they were all filled with God's Spirit, and they were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the end of verse 4 says. And what Luke means by this 
is that they were able to speak different human languages. We know this because apparently this meeting, it had spilled out of wherever it was they, they were meeting, spilled out onto the streets perhaps, where people from other lands were able to hear them speak in their own native tongue, hear them proclaim the mighty works of God in their own language. And the places that Luke mentions, you see there from verses 9 to 11, he runs through this list. These were all places where the ancient people of God were scattered in exile. The prophet Isaiah said that in the last days, God would regather his people from the four corners of the earth. And if you know your biblical geography, then you know that Luke's description of these regions moves generally from east to west and from north to south, covering all four corners of the earth. But note carefully, you see there in verse 11, that he mentions both Jews and proselytes were present. The, the proselytes were those from Gentile backgrounds. In other words, this group of people, these proselytes we're seeing, and all of the people gathered there, in fact, uh, were from different backgrounds. They're, Jews and Gentiles are witnessing this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The whole world, as it were, is witnessing this divine phenomenon. And here what we're also seeing is a reversal of what took place at the Tower of Babel. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 11 that everyone at that time on the earth, they all spoke the same language and they, they gathered together to build a tower and make a name for themselves. God, as an act of judgment, had to come down to their very tall tower. It was very little to him. He came down and as an act of judgment for them, making a name for themselves instead of making his name great, God scattered them and gave them different languages and sent them all over the earth. Well, what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. This reversal is the restoration of God's kingdom. Uh, the restoration of God's kingdom will not be strictly or solely those who are ethnically Jewish, but those who come from every tongue and tribe and nation. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. And this is just the beginning of his disciples being witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This outpouring of the Spirit is really the initial floodgates, as it were, of opening the kingdom, being restored. And now we need to understand that this is a, is a unique and unrepeatable event. Peter will explain this in his sermon. The outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost, along with its attendant signs and wonders, is part of that complex web of events associated with Jesus' resurrection and reign, his exaltation and his enthronement. God attached these miraculous signs to Pentecost so that we would not be left in doubt as to what is occurring. Jesus is making his rule and reign known to all creation. And there are at least two points of application that we can take away from this portion of Acts chapter 2. One concerns the reason for the gift of the Spirit, and the other concerns the response to the gift of the Spirit. You see there, the reason for the gift of the Spirit is found there in verse 11. The Spirit is given so that Jesus' disciples can be witnesses to the mighty works of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, ought never cause disciples of Jesus to exalt themselves. They don't say, look, I've got the Spirit, so look what I can do. No, the possession of the Spirit is not about you, but about pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The particular ministry of the Holy Spirit is always to point away from, from himself and to Jesus. A, a number of Christians are absorbed with the gift of the Spirit and what they can do with that gift. But you can tell a person is really possessed by the Spirit when they're pointing away from themselves 
and pointing to, witnessing to Jesus Christ. That's the reason the Spirit's given. And we're going to see Peter himself witness to Jesus in just a moment. You want to know if you possess the Spirit? Well, do you point away from yourself and to Jesus? It's a question to wrestle through. But what can we learn about the response or from the response to the gift of the Spirit? This unique event in redemptive history sparked two responses. Do you see them there in verses 12 and 13? There are those who ask, what does this mean? And there are those who give themselves to mocking. You could put these two responses on a spectrum, if you like. These responses give us an opportunity for self-reflection. How do you respond to the mighty works of God? Do you want to know more about God and what He's doing? Or do you trend toward mocking the mighty works of God? What is your heart's posture to, to Jesus' miracles, to Jesus' death, to His resurrection? These are the mighty works of God. What's your posture toward this scene where Jesus pours out His Holy Spirit so that His kingdom can be advanced and restored? Is your response one of gratitude or maybe one of mocking giggling? Is your response one of gratitude that Jesus' witnesses eventually reached you? That the power of Pentecost eventually came to you and you heard the good news that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Or is your response one of giggling, laughter, questioning, thinking, do Christians really believe this stuff? Do they really believe that Jesus healed people, that he cast out demons and was raised from the dead? That, that the Holy Spirit was really poured out in this way and that tongues of fire, pillars of fire were resting on each one of them? Friend, consider, if that's you, you should recognize you're, you're not really mocking Christians with those questions. You're questioning God himself and what he's done in the world. Consider carefully how you respond to the mighty works of God. Well, we've seen that Jesus went to heaven so that he could send his spirit from heaven. This resulted in this dramatic sign wherein the disciples were visibly marked by the Holy Spirit, authenticated as God's messengers, authoritative messengers. They witnessed to the mighty works of God. Some thought the disciples were marked by the divine and wanted to know more what it meant. Others thought they were drunk. And this leads us to the next scene in Acts 2, where we're treated from a wonderful sermon from the Apostle Peter in verses 14 to 36. Peter explains what is happening and why it is happening. And what we learn is that the kingdom is being restored through the king's resurrection and reign. This is our second point. The kingdom is restored through the king's resurrection and reign. Follow along now as I read what must be a summary, a snapshot really, of Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, like every good preacher, you notice that Peter, he has three points. He has three points. You see them by those three Old Testament texts he quotes. They're probably set aside kind of in a poetic form in, in your own Bibles. Yes, you can see that he's got three points. The first point's really found there in verses 14 to 21, and it's simply this. The Scriptures predicted what you are seeing. The Scriptures predicted what you are seeing. Peter's saying, look... These guys are not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Don't be silly. Rather, see this as a fulfillment of the Scriptures. Peter declares that this outpouring of the Spirit is precisely what the prophet Joel predicted would happen in the last days. Peter, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And this outpouring of the Spirit is a sign of the last days. You see that in verse 17? In the last days, the Spirit will be poured out. And that means that we are hurtling toward the last day, or the day of the Lord, as Peter calls it there in verse 20. Friends, brothers and sisters, this means that we are in the last days. And it also means that we are waiting for the last day. So, so what does that mean for you? Well, verse 21 tells us. It means that you should call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Be saved before judgment in the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Peter he seamlessly transitions from that, that first point, that what you are seeing is what the Scriptures predicted and spoke about, to his second point, to speaking about how the Scriptures spoke of Jesus' resurrection as the Christ. Peter's second point is found there in verses 22 to 32. Notice that in verse 22, Peter names a particular Jesus. This is not just any Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. 
This is a Jesus that they all knew. He lived and walked among them. What is more, they crucified him. Do you see how personal and pushy Peter gets with his crowd? You crucified him. They put him to death, as Peter says there in verse 23. Yes, as we also see, this was all a part of God's sovereign, predetermined, eternally decreed plan. So in an ultimate and heavenly sense, God put Jesus to death. We learn from the prophet Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yes, God put Jesus to death. And in an immediate and earthly sense, the Romans and the Jews were the ones who put Jesus to death. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility may bother us and how they work together, but it doesn't bother Peter. It doesn't bother the writers of Scripture. They see them as compatible and completely harmonious. Peter sees that God rules over sin and overrules sin all for his saving purposes. God overruled the power of sin and death by raising Jesus from the dead. Verse 24 is a remarkable verse. Take a look at it. We read, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now the idea underneath that word pangs is birth pangs, a, 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 an idea that many women in our congregation can understand. And what, what Peter is saying, these labor pains, is just as a woman in labor cannot keep the baby inside of herself, so death could not keep Jesus in the grave. Amen. It had an impossible task. And so to prove it, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. Peter tells us that David was a prophet who predicted that God the Father would not let his son's body see corruption. Peter says that Psalm 16... It was ultimately about Jesus and not David because we still got David's tomb. David's still buried, but Jesus isn't. David was abandoned to the grave. His body saw corruption, but Jesus' body wasn't abandoned to the grave. He was raised. And so, in verse 32, Peter connects the resurrection of Jesus to what is happening right now. The divine phenomena that has marked Jesus' disciples, the pillar of fire over them, and the proclamation of God's mighty works in languages that they can all understand declares that they are authoritative witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. All of this is intimately related. Jesus' death, His resurrection, His ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit is intimately related. And that's what Peter is going to go on and clarify in his third point. It's found there in verses 33 to 36. And here, Peter, he brings all the pieces of the puzzle together and shows us how they fit together. He connects the events of Pentecost to Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, and His reign in heaven. Notice what he says in verse 33. Being, therefore, conclusive language, right? Being, therefore, exalted to the right hand of God, which means Jesus is seated on His throne, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that's Jesus, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see how Peter puts it all together. Pentecost, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the attendant divine phenomena associated with it is the natural consequence of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and reign. This is what the scriptures spoke of and what Jesus fulfilled in his ministry. And it's at this point that Peter quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament and the most messianic psalm, or not the most messianic, but 
If there ever was a messianic psalm, this is it. Uh, he reminds his hearers that David did not ascend into the heavens. So he must have been speaking about Jesus. Jesus is seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. And that means God the Father has made, or better, declared him by his resurrection and reign. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Jesus is both Lord, God in the flesh, and the Messiah, Christ, that the Old Testament scriptures promised. Pentecost was purposed and planned. And it is the, next, it's the natural next step in God's program of salvation. This is how Jesus is now carrying out his rule and reign. This is the major difference that Jesus' resurrection and reign makes in history. It issues forth the sending of the Spirit. It inaugurates, signals the last days and leads history on to the last day. This is what Peter proclaims. But the work of the Messiah ought not leave people unchanged. Instead, the work of the Messiah ought to establish and form a new community that's marked by conviction and commitment to Jesus and his people. This is the third point that we want to begin to consider together. The kingdom is restored through a new community. In the final five words of Peter's sermon, they're found there in verse 36. In the final five words there, Peter informs his hearers that they put their Lord and Master and Messiah to death. They have committed treason against the sovereign God by killing his one and only most beloved son. I wonder if preaching sometimes makes you uncomfortable. Consider Peter and his preaching. How many times he uses you in his sermon. Peter stepped on the toes of his hearers, so to speak. And it is the responsibility of preachers to impress upon their hearers the ways in which they have transgressed God's law, broken his commands, convict them of sin, condemn sin, and to commend the Lord Jesus Christ to them. All of this is the responsibility of preachers. Friends, we need to come to understand that Jesus died because mankind had sinned against God. Following in the footsteps of our father Adam, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In order to save sinners like us, Jesus had to go to the cross. Those words, this Jesus whom you crucified, are just as true for us today as they were for those who were in the immediate hearing of Peter and immediately involved in the crucifixion of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. And before you object, remember that Peter lays the responsibility for Jesus' death squarely at the feet of his hearers. Remember that there are thousands in his hearing. So each and every one of them could not have been intimately and immediately involved in nailing Jesus to the cross. And yet, through the mouth of a spirit-filled witness of Jesus Christ, God levels the charge of crucifixion of the Christ on the crowd, to the crowd. They are guilty. And it remains true. If we have sinned, and we have all sinned, then it was our sin that held him there. It was your sin and my sin that drove the bitter nails that hung him on that judgment tree. This truth should lead you to cry out with conviction, what shall I do? I have crucified the Lord and Christ by my sins. Those who are apart 
of Jesus' new community, they express this conviction of sin. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 42. This reaction should be your reaction to the truth that Jesus was crucified and raised. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 42. Now, when they had heard this, this is the crowd, they were cut to the heart and Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you see what difference Peter's sermon on Jesus' resurrection and reign through the Spirit made in the lives of his hearers? They were convicted of their sin. Have you been convicted of your sin like this? Have you been cut to the heart? As Luke says, Peter's hearers were ashamed of what they had done. They were horrified that in their sin they had put the Messiah to death. And they hoped that there was a remedy for their sin. Peter preaches condemnation, condemnation of their sin, so that he might commend Jesus Christ to them as Savior. He urges them to repent, which means they're to turn from their rebellion against God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses baptism as a, as a metonym for faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, no doubt Peter was urging them certainly to be baptized, but baptism is a visible symbol of a vital faith in what Jesus has done, that he's lived for us, that he's died for us and been laid in the grave, and that he's been raised up for the forgiveness of our sins. Baptism itself, the act itself, does not save you. Rather, what it symbolizes, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, does. If you repent and believe in Jesus, you can be sure that your sins against God are forgiven. You will not have to bear the punishment due to your sins. This promise is for you because Jesus bore them for you on the cross. And he rose victorious from the grave, conquering the consequences of your sin. This promise, the promise of forgiveness of sins, is for you. It's for you and for all, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, as Peter says there at the end of verse 39. And so, friend, with Peter, I exhort you to save yourself from this crooked generation. This generation uh, is, is, is crooked. It's condemned by God. It is neither worse nor more wicked than Peter's generation. Nevertheless, it remains a generation that is crooked and condemned by God. And we ought all to come out from living for ourselves, turn from our sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and live for Him. That's what it means to save yourself from this crooked generation, to come to Jesus in faith. This is the first and main difference that Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave should make in your life, that you would experience conviction of sin, that you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus from salva for salvation. And this, in fact, actually is how Jesus begins to build a new community. By convicting us of our sin and by convincing us that he has done everything that's necessary to save us. 
If you've been convicted of your sin and you've been convinced that Jesus died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, then you should proclaim your faith using the sign and symbol that Jesus has given to us. Baptism. That's how we publicly proclaim that Jesus died for us and was raised for us. We step into that symbol and we say, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, that He died for me and was raised for me in the forgiveness of my sins. And just as thousands received Peter's word on that day of Pentecost, so I urge you and exhort you to receive this word. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but receive the Lord Jesus Christ and rest upon him alone for salvation and be added to God's people. In other words, true conviction leads to a commitment to God's people. And that's what we see in verses 42 to 47. Here we see a whole host of other ways that Jesus' death and resurrection ought to make a difference in our lives. And we ought not just to be devoted to Jesus, but devoted to his people. We should be devoted to his church. Take a look. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's another difference that the resurrection of Jesus should make in your life. You should be devoted to his church. You should be committed to his church, dedicated to his church, faithful to his church, loyal to his church. And and you might say, Mike, the the text says that we're to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the, the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, but not necessarily to the church. To which I would say to you, friend, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, it's a summary of the church's activity. Uh, This is what the church in Jerusalem was devoted to. This summary, it summarizes preaching and partnership and participation in the Lord's Supper and corporate prayer with God's people. And the church in Jerusalem, they were devoted to this and they're exemplary, exemplary to us in this regard. So here's the question for us all. Has the resurrection of Jesus made such a difference in your life that you are devoted to Jesus and to his church? Are you a devoted Christian or you are drive-through Christian? Do you think devotion to God's church means attending a few times a year or all throughout the year? Notice that in verse 44, it says that they were together. I don't know if you remember it at the beginning of the chapter in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. We were told that the disciples were all together in one place. If you were looking for a definition of what it means for God's people to assemble, to gather according to the scriptures, then that is it. They were all together in one place. The biblical definition of gathering is being together in one place. That's why online assemblies or online gatherings are not actual gatherings. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. It doesn't matter if a person feels like they're gathering if they are not actually with God's people gathered in the same physical location, then they are not gathering. 
If you are a Christian, unless you are sick, unless you're recovering from sickness, unless you're traveling, or because work occasionally requires you to, you should gather with your church each Lord's Day or join the church you're gathering with. That's part of what it means to be devoted to the church. But do you ever choose anything else over gathering? Gathering with God's people on the Lord's Day. Do you choose sleep or sports or health or work or physical family over church? Now, you might have hesitated over that last one, physical family. But Jesus didn't hesitate. Go back and read through the Gospels and you will find on more than one occasion that Jesus declared spiritual family is more central than blood family. You see Jesus in a crowded room teaching and his mother and brothers are coming and they're trying to get in and somebody sends word, hey, hey, your mother and brothers are are concerned about you. They're they're worried about you. And Jesus says, these are my my mother and brothers. These who are giving themselves to the teaching of God. Spiritual family has a more central place than physical family, biological family. This is how radical the implications of the resurrection are. The life of the local church becomes more central than the life of your physical family. I'm so encouraged by how the members of this church display the significance of the resurrection in our corporate life together. So many of you are clearly devoted to Jesus' church. You're in each other's homes. I love it when I call one of you on a Tuesday or Thursday or Saturday and you say, I can't talk right now, Mike. I'm in so-and-so's home and we're fellowshipping together. Praise the Lord that you are devoted and in each other's homes. You come to the prayer meeting on the, the first Sunday of the month, which we'll enjoy tonight. Your devotion is so encouraging. Uh, just thinking about our prayer meeting tonight in, encourages me. There will be moms and dads with babies on their hips walking around. Uh, sometimes a little one will scurry up the aisle, even say hi to the, the preacher. Uh, and it's a glorious picture of a family living together. Um, and sometimes it's hard to manage that situation. But who said devotion was going to be easy? Sometimes being devoted to God's people is hard because they're hard to love. And you're hard to love too. But this is what we're called to. This is what it means to be devoted. The world is calling us to be devoted to all of their causes. But you will show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life through being devoted to His church above all other worldly activity. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ and His church is our passion. Christ and His church is our life. We don't squeeze Christ and the church into our days. We fit our days into the schedule of Jesus and His church. Christian, your Sundays are booked until the Lord Jesus calls you home. They are filled up with loving God and loving His people as difficult as they may be from time to time. And you, you're to invite others into that schedule, into the schedule of the kingdom. Not to be pulled out of that schedule. Pulled out into the schedule of the kingdom of the world. If we are to live distinctly Christian lives, which reveal our devotion to the resurrected and reigning Lord, then we're going to have to give the Lord's day to the one that we call our Lord. And I'm persuaded that this day and age, this is a more difficult ask than what we find in verse 45. You see verse 45? We find the church was so devoted that they were selling their possessions and making sure that the needs of the poorest among them were met. By God's grace, our congregation has done this really well in His kindness and goodness to us. We've we've done this through our benevolence fund. 
which we supply and meet the needs of members who perhaps need to cover medication or rent or food or, or something else. There has not been a time in the years that I've served as a, the pastor of this congregation that I can think of that the church has not been able to meet a need of a fellow member. And I praise God for that. God has been gracious to us. And, and we have embodied, I think, this text in his goodness and love. But as I said, I think that it's more difficult for people. I think it's more difficult to ask people for their time than it is to ask them for their treasure. I mean, just think of this, about the easy passes in our area, right? People pay for time. People pay for time. Time is worth more to many than money. Those who are devoted to God's church are willing to give both, but they're especially willing to give their time. I think that shows a, a, a radical difference, how the resurrection reorients us. This new community described there in verses 20, uh, sorry, 42 to 47 is remarkable, isn't it? It seems so ideal. So we should strive for it, shouldn't we? We're going to fall short. Of course, the Lord knows that. But this is what we should strive for, to be devoted, devoted to doctrine, devoted to fellowship, devoted to gathering for the Lord's Supper, devoted to gathering for prayer, devoted, and so give our resources for the good of our brothers and sisters and the advancement of Christ's name. You know, another signal that you're a part of the kingdom being restored in a new community is what we find there in verses 46 and 47. It's one thing to be devoted to the church so that you attend the formal and public gatherings. It's another thing to be so devoted to the church that you can't help but connect with fellow believers outside of those formal public gatherings. Are you so devoted to the church that the church would miss you if you were gone? Is it your inclination and impulse to be with God's people and to savor God's goodness with them as often as you can? You see, the, the resurrection of Jesus really should not just affect your Sundays, but your Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and so on. You see that in verse 46? As they gather with each other outside of the Sunday gathering, they receive God's gifts and they're filled with gladness and they possess generous hearts. As we enjoy each other's fellowship throughout the week, may we be marked by such gladness and gratitude and generosity Read God's word together, sing together, laugh together, feast together. Be devoted to one another and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we should conclude. If the resurrection has made a difference in your life, then your life will be marked by devotion to Christ and his church. You will even receive the meal that we're about to partake together, the Lord's Supper, with a glad and generous heart because you know that the risen and reigning Savior who has poured out his spirit, will one day receive you at his kingdom table in glory. On that day, you will be happier than you can even begin to imagine on this day because God's kingdom will have been fully restored. Let's look forward to and long for and labor for that day.